We showed our series through Second Corinthians, and we're in chapter 4. So if you'd open there with me, we'll read it shortly. We looked at verses 1 and 2 a couple of weeks ago. But now we'll look at verses 1 through 6, and we'll briefly look at 1 and 2 again to remind ourselves. We'll look at it in a different, little different manner this morning. The question that can often be asked is, why do so many people hear the gospel and reject it? Why do they hear the gospel and despise it? Why, since it is the greatest good news that has ever come to the world, do they not all embrace it with joy as we have? What better message than can there be than there's a way to escape God's wrath, there's a way to escape heaven, it is through faith in Christ. He has come and he has taken our place, he has died in our place on the cross. And he was raised again, showing that the price was paid and that we promised that we will be raised with him and be with him forever. What, what greater message could there be and why does not everybody embrace it? People who ask that question sometimes ask the next question. What can we do to improve that? How do we get better results? How can we prove, improve our message? Can we improve our message to make it more effective? So we saw a couple of weeks ago in verse 1 and 2, the answer is we really can't improve the message because it's not an improvement. And we'll see today in 5, there is a way to improve at least our delivery of the message. But we'll start at verse 1 today. But first, let us read the chapter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the suppressing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who are alive, we who live, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And the Lord has blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly this day, asking, Lord, that you would help us and bless us to clear our minds and our hearts of the cares of the world and the life that we run, but that we might at this time and for this time set our hearts wholly on your word and thinking about it and listening to it and expounding it in our hearts that we might see the transformation and change in our lives. As for your grace in Jesus' name, amen. So as we talked about a few weeks ago in the first two verses, really the, the gospel itself is the power of God. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also the Greek, Romans 1.16. Because it is the power of God, not the skill of the evangelist, Paul was able to say the, to the Corinthians, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. 1 Corinthians 3, 6-8. Note, note well that Paul, in Apollo's wages, a reward from God comes not from the growth of the church, not from the number of converts, those are up to God, but from the, not from the number of the followers he has, but it comes from the faithfulness in planting and the faithfulness in watering. They're, they are planting and watering the seeds of truth, the gospel according to the scriptures. This is of critical importance, especially in our day, as the word of God as a whole loses its power when we veil it. And what is it? what do I mean by veil it? Well, it's veiled when it's corrupted, certainly. And we spoke about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago. As Paul said to the Corinthians, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit of him who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths for those who are spiritual. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14. When an unbeliever is sharing the gospel, it can't be the true gospel because they can't understand spiritual things, and the gospel is a spiritual matter, so when they try to explain spiritual things, it never works, because they don't understand the reality. It is impossible <clears throat> for a person whose mind is still corrupted by their sins, who hasn't been enlightened by the Spirit of God, to be able to understand the things of God. And so anyone who isn't a believer and is preaching the gospel certainly corrupts the gospel. Of course, the scripted gospel and those who are propagating them are not something good for the church. Paul addresses this in his book of, to the Galatians, where he said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you, according to the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. But even if we are an angel of heaven from heaven should preach a gospel to you contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Galatians 1, 6-8. The corrupted gospel is no gospel at all. It's not just veiled, it's not the gospel. Uh, in the case of Galatians, it was adding the works of the law and circumcision to the requirements of salvation, which should be by faith alone. But these corrupted gospels have nothing to do with the gospel, and these unbelieving teachers and preachers, they're not just veiling it, they're corrupting it beyond recognition. The true gospel, however, does get veiled even by believers, even by believing pastors sometimes. Whenever we attempt to make the gospel acceptable to the unbeliever, we're really putting a veil over it. We're hiding the things that offend. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It cannot please God. It cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 7 and 8. The sinner will not embrace the truth of the gospel. He will despise it because he is hostile to God. Unless God makes the change in his heart, he cannot receive those things. And so when we try to make it acceptable to them, we have to take out the truths that bother them. And if we take out the truth that bothers them, we have no gospel. I've heard men say, oh, but, you know, we, we bring them in and we make them comfortable and eventually they'll hear the gospel. Well, by the time they hear it, they've heard enough compromise of it and dancing around it that it doesn't have any impact. You can't make the gospel better by hiding the truth. Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach, preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentiles. Uh, the Jews wanted a Messiah, we've talked about a couple of weeks ago, who was going to restore Israel's kingdom and rule over the whole world in righteousness. And they would have that blessing, and that's all they wanted. They didn't care about the rest. So the idea that the Messiah would die, and on the cross, the worst sort of death, the cursed death, it offended them. It was a stumbling block to them. And the Jews thought all this dying and resurrection was foolishness. The Gentiles, rather. And so it was a stumbling block in folly. But to those who recall those Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Again, he wrote that to the Corinthians already in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. If we were to see broadly the reasons why unbelievers reject the gospel, it's that message of the cross. Men who want to persuade sinners to embrace the gospel will remove the stumbling block. And we learned that in school. You know, if you want to have success, you want to get ahead, you need to figure out what stumbles people, get it out of the way so they can come. Not just in sales, but in everything we do. You want to persuade somebody, remove the stumbling block, and don't say anything stupid. But God is saying to the unbeliever, the cross, the truth of the gospel is a stumbling block. It is foolishness. So the only way people can fix it, the only way they can appeal to the unbeliever, the only way they can persuade men by their own power is to put a veil over the things. Ignore that man behind the curtain. Don't worry about those truths. And then you can come. 
It's a very sad state of affairs, but they reveal the gospel to hide the seemingly unsightly things from men's heart who would reject them. It, it, it's truly foolishness. In the immediate context here, the last chapter, he starts off talking about how the veil of the Old Testament law is like the veil Moses would wear when the glory of God was fading after he had met with God. But he gives the details of what he's trying to explain in verse 14. He says, Their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That was Second Corinthians three fourteen through 16. He explained this in, to the Romans as well when he said, what, what should we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Christ in the cross is the stumbling stone to them. They want to achieve it on their own power. And they can't. And when they're told they can't, they get offended, they stumble. They don't want that gospel. So the veil he's referring to is ultimately the hardness of mind, the hardness of heart, which causes the unbeliever to reject salvation, reject righteousness before God coming through Christ's substitutionary atonement. That veil is removed by the light of Christ in the gospel, which we'll see later. But the true gospel should not be veiled by the preacher. It is already veiled to those who are unbelievers, and that veil can only be removed by God. Verses 3 and 4 speak to this, but many men really struggle with this general reaction to the gospel being negative. As I said, it's the greatest news there is, the greatest offer there has ever been, and yet men hate it. Once we were strange, once we were far off, once we were enemies. But as Paul says, well, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been reconciled. Romans five ten and 11. Why does anyone refuse to be reconciled with God? Some think, and probably the, the scholastic tainted opponents who were trying to rob Paul of his gospel and take over the churches, they, they seem to be accusing that the problem here wasn't the gospel, but it was Paul's failure to couch the message properly, which was causing him not to be able to convert some and making some angry and some hateful and bringing persecution. Paul just said it better, said it differently. The persecution would end and people would all become Christians. I first encountered that concept, as I mentioned before, when I studied evangelism explosion. The basic principle is if you can learn the right way to do it, you'll have many more converts. 
And the right way to do it was not to talk about the things that offend, but the things that appeal. A sad state of affairs. There are even many evangelicals today, so-called evangelicals, who believe Paul's message, the message in the scriptures, is not a good message to give to people if you want them to be converted. That we need to fix that, we need to change that, we need to adapt it to our modern age, we need to make improvements on it, we need to veil the things that offend to bring people in. My answer to them is, what foolishness, what arrogance. If you compromise and adapt the message to make it desirable, that doesn't remove the veil. Paul insists that if you, you tamper with it, you've ruined it. You can't tamper with it. The cause of the message's failure is not the message. It's the one who receives it. Yes, I, I admit some people's sinfulness gets in the way of the message, makes it undesirable. Right? Some people are abrasive or proud or scornful or foolish or bitter, etc. And that can persuade people not to be in, want to be a Christian. Oh, Christians are like that man or that woman. Now, we can get in the way. But as Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will never cast out anyone who comes to me. John six, thirty-five through 37 Jesus, who was perfect in his delivery, gave the message to the people, and they murdered him for it. He who was perfect, he gave the message perfectly, was rejected, despised, scorned, and murdered. But note also what he says, all the Father gives to me will come to me. Yeah, the elect hearing the true message will come. They will understand. The problem is not the scriptures, not the message of the scriptures. Some foolishly think that's the source of the problem. The problem is in the one who receives the message. It must be received with faith. Remember what the author of Hebrews says? Speaking of the people who perished in the desert, people of Israel who came out of Egypt and perished in the desert, who said the good news came to them just as to us. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. But those who listened, Hebrews 4.2, they did not have the same faith as those who were saved, and therefore the message that they heard, even though it was the same message, they saw the same miracles, they saw the same signs, they all followed the same pillar of cloud by day and saw the pillar of fire at night, but because they did not have faith, the message was useless to them. The problem isn't the message. The problem is the person. Paul himself once suffered from the very same spiritual blindness which he's teaching us about here. He writes, You have heard of my former life in Judaism. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, so Extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. He was a Jew like the ones who were fighting him. He was advancing because he was doing everything their way, including persecuting the church. He couldn't see the truth of the gospel. He couldn't understand the realities of his Messiah. Couldn't understand the purposes of God. 
But he continues, But when he who set me apart before I was born and called me according to his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, then he believed. When God took the initiative, when God changed his heart in his life, then he was no longer blind, but now he could see. Paul suffered that, so he knows what he's talking about. So in verse 3, it says, Even though our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Yes, the gospel was unclear, hidden, and veiled, just as false enemies seemed to be accusing him. But it was only to those who had a heart of stone. Once God had taken out their heart of stone and given them a heart of flesh, a living heart, once he had put his spirit within them, the veil was removed and they could see the glories of the gospel and understand the message of God. And they could be saved. As we read, the spiritual truth can't be understood by the unbeliever until God has given them a, a living heart, has given them a, his own spirit. Then they can see. Paul goes on to explain this blindness, this spiritual blindness, more in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We see a little bit here of the character of Satan. He's called here the God of this world, and Christ called him the Prince of this world in John twelve thirty one. Now, he's called the God of this world not because he made the world, God made the God the true God, Yahweh made the world, and not because he has any authority to govern the world. He's called the God of this world. Not because he owns it, or owns the men in it, or owns the things in it, but because there's influence over it. The evil, the corruption, the sin, everything that lies in wickedness is really under his power as the wicked one. Remember what John said, we know that we are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. First John 5.19 It lies in his power because man chose to rebel against God and reject God and follow Satan. But it only lies in his power so long and in such a way as God allows. So it is because of his influence, because unbelievers who have been led captive to do his will voluntarily have given themselves up to him. They follow their lusts and they show themselves to be his children through their sin. And so in that way he is able to blind the minds of unbelievers now, when it says that he blinds their heart, it's not because he has more power than God, and God says, oh, I want you to believe, and oh, no, Satan has blinded you, and I'm, I'm thwarted in my will. No, God's will is never thwarted. It always accomplishes his purpose. God is one who hardens men's hearts and darkens men's hearts as punishment for their sin, for their ongoing sin. The instrument he uses may be Satan, but the authority is his alone, not Satan's. We have to be careful. There's that false gospel. And God has a vote, you have a vote, and the devil has a vote. God always votes for you. The devil votes against you. They're equal. But you are superior because your vote counts as you overrule them. That's nonsense. It's heresy. Satan's power only is there because God allows him to as part of his purpose and his plan. 
to do what God intends. So Satan, yes, blinds their heart, but it is God who is the one who's giving that as a consequence for their continued sin. And he gives the purpose of Satan here to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Think about that. God, God we cannot see. No one has ever seen God the Father. No one has ever seen the eternal God, but they have seen the Son. He is the image of God in that he is holy God, that he is perfect in his wisdom and his power and his righteousness and his holiness, his sinlessness. And seeing him and seeing him described in Scripture helps us to know then God. He is the image of God. The glory of Christ is seen as the glory of God, and we see it in the life and death of Christ and his atonement for us. But they, God, Satan, is trying to keep them, keep the people of this world from seeing the light of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And as I said, this is God's punishment for their continued sin. As Isaiah said, as God said to Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. Their spiritual blindness is the result of their sin and their corruption, and it is part of God's justice to enforce that. And that is why Jesus said, by the way, he spoke in parables. He was asked, and he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, meaning to the believers, but to the others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Luke 8.10 God does not intend the wicked to understand the gospel, and so it is veiled to them. Through the agency of Satan, yes, but as God's will. Ultimately, I think, though, the veil is there so that only God can save people, and only God then gets the glory. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. So even the grace of our salvation and the faith that we have is from God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. It is for God's glory that he does this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Ultimately, God is the one who decides who he will forgive. And God hardens the heart of the wicked who sin more. And God gives grace and faith to those he chooses, though they do not deserve it. And he does this so that they may not boast. We have no boast in him, only that only of him, that in his greatness he has done this. So the veil of the gospel is not because the gospel has a flaw or a problem that we need to fix, but because men are sinners and reject the truth of God out of hatred for God. And Satan is their master because they choose him over God. A sad state of affairs but the veil can be removed. Verse 5 and 6, The gospel is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. What we proclaim is not ourselves, 
but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. It's not about us. Men are often self-centered. They have pride. They want fame. They want success. They want to you know, show their worthiness to everyone, including God. And so they're tempted to tamper with the message, knowing that it's rejected by sinful man. They want to improve their lot by veiling the things that are unsightly, by veiling the truth. There are men who are so narcissistic that they make their preaching and their gospel about themselves, but that's not what I'm talking about here. They want to proclaim Christ and see people converted, and they find, oh, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You need to fix that. But instead, they veil the gospel and make it hard even for the God's children to find it. They shut up the doors of heaven. Paul insists that we proclaim Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Now, I remember the whole reimagining God fad, and many people were taught to, you know, reimagine God in the image of someone who serves you and meets your needs, who makes you feel good about yourself, who makes you happy, who makes you comfortable, and have a new God. God is not like that. God is not our co-pilot. Paul does not preach Christ our friend. He is our friend. Christ does not preach, or Paul does not preach Christ our brother. He is our brother. Christ is not even preached as Savior. He is our Savior. He says, I preach Christ Jesus as Lord. There's a heresy that was going around a while back that said you can have Jesus as your Savior and reject him as your Lord. That was not Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel was Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord of glory. He is Yahweh, the second person of the eternal trinity, the Son. Unless you've acknowledged Jesus as Lord of your life, you have not acknowledged him as your Savior. That false gospel is not the gospel. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give your helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. If you have been saved, if God has taken out that heart of stone and put in that heart of flesh, he has put his spirit within you, that as we read in that passage in Ezekiel, it will cause us to be careful to keep his commandments and to walk in his ways. Jesus is not Lord of our salvation if he's not Lord of our life. And so Paul insists we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. Continuing on in verse 5, in us as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Think about that for a moment. The apostles, the pastors, the elders, those who serve God in this great ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about in chapter 5, verses 16 to 21 here in Second Corinthians, which we'll get to in due order. This great ministry of reconciliation makes him not Lord of the church. It makes Paul servant of the church. Many get this wrong. 
I remember a very sad story in Cambodia. There was an abandoned church out in the countryside, and I said, well, what happened? Well, the pastor had, you know, 50 people coming to church, and one of the young girls in the church got married. And she got married in the church of the pastor in the city where this husband went. And he was so angry that they dared despise him and not hold the wedding in his church that he denounced those people there and left. Because the church was his church and they were his people and that, was, that girl was his person. She belonged to him and she had to marry in his church. You know, that, that arrogance sometimes comes up because men want to be lord of their domain. I am the head here. I am the one who built this. I am the one who did this. But it is not true. Others insist on being, that being obeyed is the most important point. I've met pastors who will crush anyone who refuses to submit to them. You have to submit and you have to agree in everything, not just doctrine, but even their whims, usually. Paul denounces this. He wrote to Timothy, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to anyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after having been captured to do his will. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. Now, there's a lot in that passage, but think about it. Patient, enduring, hoping that God will give the growth. Now, men do not submit to the pastor as Lord. They should submit to Christ as Lord. And if men are teaching them, pastors and elders are teaching them, submit to me as Lord, then they won't be able to submit to Christ as Lord, and the church will be harmed. Which is why Paul says we preach Christ Jesus as Lord in us as servants. We read earlier in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verse 24, Paul says, We do not lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for your, for your stand firm in your faith. Think about that. We do not lord it over your faith. We work with you. That was his purpose. And that was in keeping with Christ's example and Christ's command. Jesus called the disciples to himself and said, You know that the rules of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That continues to this very day. You want to be a leader? You need to be the one in charge. You tell everybody what to do, and they do what you say, and they don't talk back, and they don't question. And he says, It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and give his life a ransom for many, Matthew 25, or 20, 25 through 28. Think about that. The pastors, apostles, elders, they don't only serve God, they serve God's children. And any man who wants to stand up and make himself Lord or leader is in the wrong. He should be the servant. The more he thinks he should be the great one, the more he should be the servant of others. It's self-serving to compromise the gospel for our success. And that's my point. If we preach Jesus as Lord, then we don't care about ourselves. We care about his kingdom, his glory, his honor, his church, his people, 
and we serve them, not ourselves. If we serve ourselves, then we're going to compromise the Scripture to get what we want. But if we want what God wants, then we know the Scripture is the only way to get there. We're not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to the salvation of everyone who believes. Romans 1.16 We can, yes, improve our delivery, but it's improve our delivery of the uncompromised gospel by remembering, we do this by remembering our place. We're only the one who waters or we're only the one who plants. We can only plant and water using the truth of God's word. The truth which God uses to God's growth. We serve God's people by sharing to them the whole truth, the unveiled, uncompromised gospel message as we find it in scriptures, seeking God's glory and God's praise, not our own success. That's Paul's point here. They were focused on their worldly success, on their greatness. And even the Jews in that city, Jewish leaders, were using the principles of the Greek and Roman philosophers, I'll prove myself, my success means that you should follow me and become like me. And they said, who wants to be like Paul, persecuted and harassed? We can fix things. We can make it better. We can use Paul's religion and come up with a better version of it that makes us all happy and successful. But that was casting a veil over it and corrupting it in Paul's mind. If someone tries to make it acceptable, they're really tampering with God's message. They're showing that they're ashamed of the gospel. Jesus said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? If he has many converts, much money, much prestige, many followers, but forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark eight thirty six through 38. We should not be ashamed to the gospel. The pure, unadulterated, biblical gospel message, the scriptures, are the power of God that he uses to lift that veil from men's hearts. Yes, the gospel is veiled, but God has the power to raise that veil, and he does it through his word and through his gospel and through those who are faithful and truthful in talking about that. We should all be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us, and we should do it honestly. This is what the Lord says. We don't need to try and fix it and make it better and make it make sense to them. The truth has that power, and God can use that truth for his glory. When the veil is lifted, the blind can see. Verse 6, for God who said, let the light shine out of darkness. Whenever I read that, I always think of the creation account. Remember in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good. Genesis chapter 1. You know, God let the light shine out of darkness, and now there is light to see. At the same time, whenever I think of that, 
I always think of the next part of this verse, verse 6. With the light is shown in our hearts. Isaiah 9 says in verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, and them has the light shone. Of course, he's talking about the same thing Peter is talking about. Talking about the scriptures, the word of God, which revealed Christ to us. Peter said in 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21 through 21, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, in which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, that first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes about by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Prophecies of Scripture are the written Scriptures, and what he is saying is that, including what Paul teaches us here, is God's will and God's Word and written as God moved the person to write it. And he says that is a lamp shining in a dark place. Not our wisdom, not our skill, not our ability, not our desires, not what we want. But God's word is the lamp that lights the world. Why do men hate it? Well, we have to go back to John three sixteen and following. For God thus loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And the people love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Understand that. The light that has come into the world is Christ, yes, but Christ as revealed in Scripture and the light that makes their deeds appear evil is the light of the truth of the word. Why do pastors, good faithful pastors, you know, read the all, all of the word of God? Why does Paul say, you know, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I have never failed to preach the whole counsel of God? Because all of this is the light that exposes the sin in our heart. And it's only by exposing the sin in our heart that we can see the sin and renounce the sin and turn from the sin to God. When we compromise, when we hide it, when we don't read the things that offend, that sin goes on in our lives. That sin goes on in the church. Sin goes on in the world. Because we've hidden the light. Instead of shining it in the dark crevices, we put it under a veil so that nobody is offended. There's a one who does wicked things hates the light because they don't want their wickedness exposed. But the light of the word of God, the light of the gospel, is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Verse 6, the end of the verse, in the face of Jesus Christ. The word of God is the light of knowledge, the light of the glory of God. 
the light of Christ that shines in the world and shows the world the way to heaven. When we say, oh, but the cockroaches want to run away from the light and hide, therefore we need to turn the light off so we can have fellowship with the cockroaches. It doesn't work that way. Come into the light and walk with God who is in the light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we want to veil the light and hide the light, then how can we walk with God? Yeah, we must preach the truth. We must preach it in love. The desire to have men turn to God, the desire to have men repent of their sins and walk more closely with God day by day. But they can only do that with the truth of the gospel and with the truth of the scriptures. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that we would never be ashamed of your gospel. Even though men will reject it, we understand that they reject it because of their sin. We reject it because they don't want to come into the light, but they want to hide their sin. And bless us, Lord, to always be ready to give that reason for the hope that is in us, to always be ready to share the whole counsel of your word, to share the true gospel, unveiled, unadulterated, untampered with, with the knowledge that that is the power you use to convert souls, that is the power you use to sanctify your people. Let us not, Lord, rob it of its power by hiding it behind a veil. Give us courage and strength, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.